Well, good morning. Glad that you're here. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Brian, Brian Stewart, and I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at the Life Center. It's good having you here with us today. Uh, last Sunday, we began a, a brand new series in the book of Ezekiel and calling this series Finding Hope in Dark Times. You can see that. And uh, we all go through dark times, right? We all go through difficult and, and challenging times. My guess is uh, some of you are going through a dark time uh, right now. Uh, that, unfortunately, that's just part of life, isn't it? And when we go through those dark times, difficult times, I think what we're all looking for, we're looking for hope, right? Uh, we're looking for a sense of hope in those dark times. You know, as people have said that we really can't live without hope, and I agree. I mean, if someone, someone loses hope, you know, that's a very, that's a very um, a bad place to be. Sad place to be. So in Ezekiel, the prophet and the people, they're going through a very difficult dark time. And last uh, Sunday, we introduced uh, the book, introduced the prophet. And why don't you open up your Bibles to Ezekiel? That would be a good place to uh, go. How many people have their Bible with them today? Oh, that's good. Okay, good. Courage to bring your Bibles, right? So Ezekiel, just uh, go to Ezekiel chapter 1. That will be a good place to land at the beginning. So in this, we realize when the book opens up, Ezekiel is where? Where is the prophet Ezekiel? Where is he? In Babylon, that's right. He's at, uh, we see that map there, uh, Garth. There's a, a map, and you can see he's there. The Kabar River talks about there. So there's Jerusalem way down here. And they go, I had to go all the way to Babylon, to the Kabar River. So this happened because the Babylonian was the superpower of the day, right? They were the big, big bullies on the block, and they were the superpower. And they came into Israel, the southern kingdom, and they took a first wave of group of people into deportation, into, into exile. And the first group was like the royal, like kind of uh, the elite people in this society. So it was like the royal family. It was the aristocracy. It was the wealthy, the brightest, the youngest, the most gifted. And they took this group, this first deportation, there were three waves, and they brought them into exile in Babylon, and Ezekiel was one of these. So when Ezekiel 1 opens up, we, we read it's the 30th year, which may not mean much to us, but that was referring to probably Ezekiel's what? His birthday. Very good. So he's turning 30 years old, so no big deal. But what happened? Why was that significant, turning 30? Remember that? What's that? Very good, yeah. So that's when he was from a family of priests. So that's when, happy birthday to me, happy birthday. This is a big day, right? And 30 years old, he was about to enter into the priesthood. But he was out of, he was out of work. He was unemployed because there was no temple in Babylon. Where's the temple? Where's the presence of God? In Jerusalem. So it was a very difficult time for him, and it's a very difficult time for the Jews who are in exile because they're away from their home, from their family, from their culture, from watching the Canucks, no, not that, but watching all those things, the comfort of their home, all their friends, they were away from that, and it was a dark and difficult time. So then in Ezekiel chapter 2, uh, God commissions the prophet. He commissions Ezekiel to be not just a priest, but to be a prophet. So let's uh, read a little bit here. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 2 and verse 1, okay? He, that's God, said to me, actually, maybe like, let me just pause here. So when he had this vision, right, and in this vision in one, it was like, woo, 
it was wild and weird, and for all of it, man, this was some vision. But there was uh, these, these four creatures, and they had four faces. They had a face of a human, the face of an ox, face of an eagle, and face of, what's the other one? Yeah, right. And so, and then they had wheels, these four wheels, <laughs> and it could go all different directions, but the wheels never turned. And on top of this, Thing. There was a platform, and on top of this platform, you know, with all this thunder and smoke and rumbling of thunder and lightning, there was a throne. And on the throne is God, the, the kavod, the glory of God, right? So where he's not in Jerusalem, should be in Jerusalem. That's where the temple and the presence of God is. But now God is where? In Babylon. The big question is why did God's presence leave Jerusalem. So Ezekiel chapter 2, and let me read a few verses here in verse 1. Ezekiel 2 verse 1. So, so he, God said to me, son of man, that's a phrase that God will refer to Ezekiel a lot in this book. Son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the spirit came into me and raised me to my feet and I heard him speaking to me. He said, son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites to rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, and whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. So that is the Ezekiel's commission. <laughs> How would you like to have that commission? Wow, doesn't that sound like fun, right? And what makes matters even worse, you know, uh, people, they don't listen to Ezekiel. They probably did this. Oh, why don't you all just yawn right now in my face? Just go ahead. Just, oh, they just, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Ezekiel, we, yeah, 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 we've heard it all before, right? They didn't listen to them. And so Ezekiel, he does things to try to get people's attention. I mean, you think I do things to try to get people's attention. He's over the top. And so in Ezekiel chapter 4, I'm not going to read all this, but you can read it today. In Ezekiel chapter 4, he does these sign acts, okay, sign acts. And they're sort of like street theater. So it is, a really like street theater, because he's out in the city square, and he has to get these people's attention, like, you know, trying to get their attention. And so he does all these kind of weird things to get God's message to them. So one of the things he does is he, he kind of builds, um, he makes a model of Jerusalem, sort of like out of Lego blocks, right? And he makes this model of Jerusalem for all the people to see, and then he kind of reenacts what it's going to be like when the Babylonians come and attack and maybe go, he wipes everything off the table and it's supposed to show the people God's coming and you've been rebellious, but this is going to happen to the city of Jerusalem. And they're still probably, oh yeah, that's interesting. And so he does, he, uh, he obviously had lots of hair. So uh, like Ryan, look at Ryan's hair. You have amazing hair. And uh, so he had like Ryan's hair and he, the prophet cut all his hair off and he chopped it up and then he scattered it because that was supposed to demonstrate what's going to happen to you people. God's judgment is coming. He's going to scatter you all over the place. And so that didn't work, okay? Forget about Ryan's hair for a second. Right now, Ezekiel. And so that didn't work. And so he said, okay, ha, uh, um, okay. So he tied himself up with rope, right? He bind himself with rope. And then he laid on his, and he, it was like the day of atonement. And he was 
reenacting, taking on the sins of the sinful people. So he bound himself with rope, and he laid, lied, laid on his left side, his left side, for 390 days. You say, it doesn't say that. It does say that. For 390 days, reenacting that he has taken on all the sins of Israel for 390 days. How long is that? That's a year and a bit, right? And then after 390 days, guess what he does? He still stays bound up, and he turns on his right side, and he's now facing Judah, and he's representing all the sins that they have committed have been taken on him, and he's laying on his right side for 40 days, 40 days. So imagine that, huh? What a guy. Like, I don't know. Did he uh, get up at 9 o'clock in the morning, go down the city square, 9 to 5, oh, another day, another dollar, and, you know, that 5 o'clock quitting time, go home the next day. I don't know. Did he do it for 390 days consecutively? We're not told. He did that. And then, in the middle of this, he's like, you get hungry, right? You're going to get hungry. So you have to eat. And so God says, okay. I'm working hard today. And so God says, okay, you got to eat. So look at what he says in Ezekiel chapter 4. Because you won't believe me. If I just blurt this out, you won't believe me, okay? Cover your kids' ears, okay? So it says in Ezekiel 4 verse 9, take wheat. So this is the middle of his 390 days and 40 days lying on side. Take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt. Put them in a storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself because you have to eat. You are to eat it during the 390 days you lay on your side. You know, away in and all that stuff. Verse 12, eat the food as you would a loaf of barley bread. Bake it in the sight of the people using human. What does that say? Human excrement. So the, the NIV is being very kind here, okay? You, you understand? Like human poop, okay? Human dung. There's other words for it. We won't say it right now. That is what he was doing. And like Ezekiel said, whoa, a little too far. I've never eaten human poop. And God says, okay, if you don't want to do that, then he says later on in verse 15, very well, he said, I'll let you bake your bread over cow dung. Instead of human excrement. Yeah. In the Bible. And it's all to get the people's attention, right? It's all to get their attention that they have been defiled. They have been rebellious. And they have been unclean. So he's doing all this to get their attention and nothing. Nothing. They don't respond. They don't do anything. And so what you have in... In uh, Ezekiel 8, doing a big tour here of Ezekiel, uh, chapter 8, there's these, um, hmm, uh, Ezekiel has another vision. So it says in Ezekiel 8, verse 1, in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house, and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came on me. Listen to this. I looked, and I saw a figure like that of a man from what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire, and from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court where the 
idol that provokes to jealousy stood. So what God does, do you follow this? Some years later, it might be up to, it might be up from seven years later. And so Ezekiel has another vision from God. And it's like, you know, it's this picture. He grabs him by the hair and he yanks him up and they go to, where are they now where this story takes place? No, they're in Babylon, right? So they go in this vision. God takes them on a virtual tour of the temple in Jerusalem. And, what, and this is kind of showing why God is so angry and why God's judgment is going to come upon them. And because they've been involved in idolatry. And so on one of the first stops of the tour... Ezekiel sees the elders, so the religious leaders, and he looks in kind of this hole in the temple, and they are bowing down and worshiping other gods. And then he takes them on another turn, another stop, and there are these women, the women there, and they are worshiping, they are bowing down. It's not just outside the temple, but it's inside the temple. They're bowing down and worshiping this Babylonian God. Can you imagine how God feels? It's not just happening outside, but inside. It's one thing, it's one thing a person having an affair, but the spouse comes home and they're having an affair in their house, in their bedroom. And God is not pleased. And he calls all this thing, you see in verse, um, in verse 10, Ezekiel 8, verse 10, well, let's read verse 9. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing here. So I went in and looked, and I saw portrayed all over the walls, all kinds of crawling things and unclean animals and all the idols of Israel. And you know what that Hebrew word is for idols? Dung. Dung. And, okay, that's the, the nice way of saying it, right? That's what God is saying the idols are to him. Dung. Poop. That's what God is saying. And so, you know, it just kind of goes on and on. And so God, as we see in Ezekiel 8, and you go into Ezekiel 11, God in this vision, the temple, God's presence, his kavod, his, his, the glory of God, the presence, it lifts up. And it leaves Jerusalem and the people. And so now we finally know why God's presence left uh, Jerusalem. Why? Why? Because of what? Because of idolatry, of worshiping other idols. You see, we have to understand that God moved away from the people because first the people moved away from God. Does that make sense? That the God removed himself, his presence, his glory. It, it left the people of Jerusalem of Jerusalem, left the temple because they first removed themselves from God. They walked away from God by worshiping these other idols and other things, and as a result, God walks away from them. So I'm kind of sparing you a bit because you're saying, you know, the message, the series is, is uh, finding hope in dark times. I haven't found much hope yet. Well, okay, um, I'm sparing you a little bit because it's about another 20 chapters of this stuff. Okay, and if you, we can only take so much of this. 
So next week, we're going to start. <laughs> there's the hope part in Ezekiel. But this is the, if you want to find hope, ultimate hope, we got to remove the idols of our lives. God, it just, oh, if you read the Old Testament, if you want to see something that God gets his back up, I mean, really gets angry about, it's when his people are worshiping other things. That gets God fired up. Yeah. And that happened there. Now, I was thinking about that, and, you know, I, sometimes I think we can think, you know, idols are statues and things like that, and, you know, you think, you know, they're a bunch of dumb hillbilly people, right? These people way back then. But they weren't dumb people. They were pretty smart people, I think. But they were worshiping other things. And see, an idol, so an idol, we know this, right? An idol's not just a statue, right? We have idols in our lives, right? Right? We have idols. We have idols. Tim Keller uh, says it like this in his book, uh, Counterfeit Gods. He says this, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Okay? An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Let's just leave that there. An idol is anything more important to you than God. So an idol, as he goes on to say, is, can be a good thing, right? But it becomes an ultimate thing in your life. Anything that's more important to you than God. So an idol, of course, you know, the big ones are money, sex, power. You know, those are kind of the big idols, I guess, in our days. But there are other idols too, right? An idol is anything, anything more important to you than God. Like these people, they were smart people back then. They were spiritual people. But they were falling down to idols, statues. Why? Well, I don't know. Maybe they were scared, maybe, right? They feel like we're the Babylonians coming. God doesn't seem to be here. So we gotta, we're going to call on anything or anyone to get us out of this mess. So you think about it that... I would, let me ask you, what are the idols in your life? Now, be honest here. I didn't, I didn't ask you, do you have any idols? Sorry? Okay. An idol, so what are the, you know, what are, you know, you think, you know, for a moment, <laughs> maybe you don't want to shout them out, I don't know, <laughs> because probably some of them are whatever, but what are the idols in your life? Just think about that. What are the things that become ultimate things? When you think of it like that, you know, uh, a family can be an idol, right? Your kids can be an idol. Your spouse can be an idol, right? Running can become an idol. Uh, all these things that are good things can be good things, but they become ultimate things. I have idols, and I have potential of idols in my life. And I think if we're honest, I'm not the only one. We all have things in our lives that, that can become more important to us than God, right? That think of it, what do you think about? What do you dream about? What do you have nightmares about? What do you, um, yeah, what are the things that if, you, if that thing or that person was removed from your life, not only would you be unhappy and maybe even devastated, 
but you couldn't go on without that. We all have those things. And you know, God, God is serious about sin because God is serious about you. And God is serious about idolatry because God is serious about you. God is seriously in love with you. And he knows these idols in our lives, these counterfeit gods, can wreak havoc in our lives. God is serious about sin because God is serious about you. As a parent would, um, is serious about protecting their child from fire and warning them, don't touch that, don't go near that, because they know, that what, they know how that fire could wreak havoc in their life. It could hurt the kid. It could burn down a house. It could just destroy a lot of things. And that's true for our idols. We, you know, we think, well, it's no big deal. It's a big deal. It really is. And God goes on, I mean, for chapter after chapter after chapter about this stuff. This is big, big stuff. Yeah. If, if, so this whole thing, if we're going to find hope, is first of all, we have to recognize what the idols are in our lives. So, yeah. What are they? What are they for you? Because then he goes on in chapter, in chapter 11. It's very interesting. In chapter 11, if you just turn there, Ezekiel 11, and we read these verses in verse 17. Ezekiel 11, verse 17. So there is hope. <laughs> Did God abandon his people forever? No. What did God do? He came after them. In Babylon. And so Ezekiel 11, verse 17. This is, a, this is a turning point. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you've been scattered. And I will give you back the land of, Is- of Israel again. Verse 18. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart, and I will put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. They will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. And there's a glimmer of hope here, isn't it? He, first of all, says, you know, you have to recognize what your idols are. So, yeah, just what are they for you? Just think about that. What are those idols, those good things that become even more important to God? And then it says, what did it say? What's that word? It's kind of these R words, but it says remove, right? They're to remove these uh, images as well, these test bodies. So we're to remove them from our lives. But I think even more important than the removing, you know, because we can't do it without a new heart, right? And what does he promise here? We're going to see later on in Ezekiel, God is going to give us what? A new, a new heart. Not a heart of stone, but a soft heart, a tender heart. We see that fulfilled ultimately in Jesus, right? This new heart that we have. Because it's not enough to remove the idols. We have to replace them with with Jesus. See, I, the, the cure for idolatry is worship. 
Not worshiping these other things, but it's worshiping the one true God. Because when you see the greatness of God, you see how these other things, and these other things can be good, these other things, but they'll never satisfy us. They'll never make us complete. We're not complete with our kids. We're not complete with our, our family. We're not complete with our hobbies. We're not complete with our career. We're complete only in Jesus. And if once we see the beauty of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus, I love the songs we were singing today, just really focusing on this. It really, it helps us to put these potential idols in their perspective, right? It's sort of like if I was, if I was, I won't go over there, but if I was, uh, say I was going to draw on that curtain, right, that white curtain, a sunrise, okay? I'm an awful drawer. So I was going to draw that, and I think maybe it's Mount Baker in the background. I was going to draw that on the white thing, right? And if that's all you knew, you might say, well, wow, a sun, the sun, isn't it great? Mount Baker, isn't it magnificent with the, the snow peak cat right now? But then, if that's all you knew, but then if I pulled the shade and whoo, guess what you really see? You see the sun, and you see Mount Baker. <laughs> You'll never go back to my pathetic grind again, right? It's like, that's all you knew, and that's all you knew. But when you see the real thing, you will fall in love with that. And that's what, this is really the, the cure for idolatry. You just can't remove idols. You have to replace it with something better. Because an idol is something we get, our, we get our joy from. We get our love from. I love running. But I know running and things like that is the potential becoming an ultimate thing in my life. And what really is our satisfaction, what really is our joy, is Jesus. And so, as we come to communion today, part of the things with communion, we're called to examine our hearts, right? We're called to that. And I would just humbly ask that we would examine our hearts and allow the Spirit of God examine our hearts to reveal to us what are the idols in our lives. And then with the Spirit of God, ask to remove those, to replace those with the love for Jesus. That's one of the great things you can do is that's why we're encouraging you to read God's word. Because as we read God's word, we discover who Jesus is. In January, we're going to go through this, uh, uh, looking forward to it, but a series for the whole year, the whole year, the whole year, called Love This Book. And we're going to take you on the tour of the, all the scriptures. But the ultimate goal is not just to love the book, but as we love the book, we love God. And that's one of the ways you can fall more in love with God, by reading his word and letting it transform you. Let it not just replace that, 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 that idol. No, sorry, not just to remove it, but to replace it as well. As I mentioned, I think last week, I have a, a friend who's been uh, diagnosed with stage four cancer. One of the areas where he has cancer is in his liver. And I didn't know this, but um, the oncologist is saying they can actually cut out the cancer in the liver. And the liver is the only organ that actually grows back. Amazing, huh? So they can cut out, I don't know, a half or a third of it, and it, it grows back, a healthy organ. And in some ways, cutting out sometimes, some of the idols are painful. They are. Because we've spent so long, they are what bring us fulfillment. But God in His Spirit promises to not just 
remove it, but replace it with a healthy heart and a heart that loves him and seeks him. But we are called to fall in love with Jesus. And those other things will have their proper place. So as the uh, worship team comes forward um, to lead us in a song, preparing us for communion, I would ask us to examine our hearts and ask God by His Spirit to remove those idols from our lives and ask God to give us a soft heart that would replace those idols with the love for Jesus Christ. Let's do that. Raised to overthrow. 
Jesus' name.